So parents, we'll leave that picture up as long as you can promise to concentrate. But if we need to take it off, we'll go, we'll go to the next one. But we're talking about maturity. How do you move to a place of a spiritual health? where you become mature. And if you got one of your sheets, you can look on the back because we're in Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us a spiritual uh, maturity equation. Like how do you get to a point where you can be mature? And there's, there's a couple components. You have to have a gospel community. Then you need gospel ministry. And when you combine those two things in your life, it creates spiritual maturity. You grow. You become mature. And so we're looking at this first piece about the gospel community. And in verses 1 through 6, what Paul tells us is if you're going to have a healthy community, there's two things you need. You need certain characteristics that you have, and then there's certain convictions you hold. So there's characteristics you have and convictions you hold. And we looked last week at the characteristics we have in a healthy community. And that they're characteristics like humility and gentleness and um, patience. And so these are the characteristics we have. But then in a healthy community, there's also certain convictions that you have to hold. Certain beliefs. And those two things come together that make a dynamic gospel community where you can really grow and be mature. So what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to think about what are those convictions that he lays out here that we must hold in order to grow and to develop. So let's start verse 1 and we'll read through um, verse 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So those are the characteristics that should mark us as a church. A healthy church is marked by these things, a place where uh, people are patient with one another. They're humble. They're gentle. They bear one another's burdens, and then they're eager to maintain the unity that they have. But then notice here are the convictions. And uh, notice if you, as, as I read through, just listen for certain key words that are repeated. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So did you hear it seven times in that little refrain? It's one, one, one. I want you to be one because there's one, uh, one God, one Father, one Spirit, one Lord. And so what Paul is doing here is if you're going to have a community that's going to be healthy, there has to be unity. Unity is an essential mark of this community. But notice how the community, because what I want you to see is that the convictions he wants them to hold flow out of who God is. There's one spirit. There's one Lord. There's one Father. It's the tri-unity of God that gives our unity as God's people. So what we're going to look at this morning is, all right, we're going to look at this verse, and we're going to just kind of ask two things. What are the convictions we should hold, and then why should we hold them? How can that help us? What's, what's the point? So what are they? And I've got them listed down here in your sheet because you can really see three kind of categories. So there's, there's seven things he says you've got to hold on to, seven ones, seven things to hold on to, and they can be structured around the three persons of the Trinity, convictions about the Spirit, convictions about the Son, and convictions about God. So let's look at each of these in turn. So first, notice the convictions about the Spirit. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. 
So one spirit, one body, one hope. These are the things we hold to about the Holy Spirit. Notice a couple things. This first, you know, one spirit, one body. So the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to make you into a body. One, uh, unity, make you into one body. That's actually the theme of the, the entire chapter. So we're not going to spend too much time this morning on it because it's, it's the theme of the whole chapter, how the Holy Spirit brings uh, these diverse people together and makes them one body. But just a couple of things to think about is you have these two kind of components. You have one spirit and then you have one body. So the body gives shape to the organism, and then the Spirit gives life. So you need both of those things for, for you to be healthy and to be alive. You need a healthy, functioning body, and you need a healthy, functioning spirit. So like a body, you know what you call a body with no spirit? It's a corpse. So you don't want to be that. And then you know what you call a spirit with no body? Uh, that's a ghost. <laughs> so we don't want a church as a ghost. Uh, so you don't want that either. You have to have both together, a healthy functioning body with a, with a spirit that's alive. And we're in the process of trying to form and fashion, in essence, both of those things. So kind of where we are in the life of our church, we're two years old, we're starting to create and establish all of the systems of the body so that the body can be healthy. So you need organization and you need structure and you need systems and all of those things can help us uh, grow and thrive. And then, but just because you have the, the systems doesn't mean you have any life. You know, if there's no spirit, there's no life. So you need the Holy Spirit to breathe life into all of those systems. So we put up systems so we can um, have worship where God's people come together. But our whole goal in worship is not just to come together. Our whole goal is to encounter the resurrected Christ. To have a spiritual encounter with the living Lord. So through word and spirit, you encounter him. So we need the spirit to breathe life into all of these things. So the goal is kind of create systems where um, you can encounter the Lord, where you can be established in the faith, and then you can engage uh, the world. Um, but then you need the spirit to breathe life into those things. So mo both of those have to be uh, together. So you don't become just a corpse or a ghost. You can have vitality and life. Another thing, notice the next thing is the Spirit brings about hope. So it's one of the things that the one Spirit creates the one body and animates it and gives it life. But isn't it interesting that one of the key characteristics, the trait here that he highlights is hope. You have hope. Notice what he says, one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the hope that belongs to your call. You know, it's interesting as you look, this is actually just one sentence in the Greek, and that word for calling uh, is used four times in this sentence. It's used in the beginning as a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And you have the hope that just you were called to one hope that belongs to that call. So one of the central realities here is that the Holy Spirit issues this call to you. And part of that call is to fill you and fuse you with a hope. You know, Paul will tell the Colossians that what is our hope is Christ in us. That's our hope of glory. We have this hope of glory, uh, and that animates all that we do. And see, one of our struggles is that our English word for hope is so much weaker 
than the New Testament concept of hope. So we use hope in a sense of like, well, you know, I hope when I ask her out, she'll say yes. I hope we'll win the game. I hope we'll get the job. I hope, you know, I won't get pestered at work today. I hope these things. But it's not, it's not anything we're actually confident or sure of. That's not how the New Testament uses the word hope. The word hope is talking about a sure and real confidence of a reality that you know is true, but just hasn't happened yet. So because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and conquered death and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, we have this hope of sure victory. And that then that, that fuels and, and, and animates all that we do. I hate watching commercials. And so one of the greatest inventions, I've been on the TiVo bandwagon from very beginning, still a loyal TiVo customer. I don't know if they're going to still exist in another year or two, but I'm, all, I'm riding the bandwagon until the end. So we have a TiVo box at home and have for years because I cannot stand watching commercials and do anything to fast forward. But it creates a certain personal dilemma. So here's, you know, first world problems. Here's my problems on Saturday because I love watching college football. And I hate watching commercials. So you got to try and time it where you can still watch the game. But the trouble is if you spend too much time because people are texting you and just phones are everywhere and people don't have manners and will send you things about the game, you learn the end even though you haven't actually gotten to the end while you're watching it. I know it's a terrible thing. But you know what happens like when you know the actual outcome, the way it shapes how you're actually watching the game? It kind of it drains it of all of its anxiety. So if you already know you've won, then you can, you can be much calmer, at least I can anyway, you can be much calmer as you're watching. And as I was thinking about this text this week, you know, one of the, the, the points he makes is the, the, the fruit that he wants us to experience is a people who are marked with patience, who have a certain settled calmness, not anxious energy. And I wondered if our lack of patience is connected to our uncertainty of our hope. Like if you know you have a strong victory in the end, then you're not going to be nearly as anxious about how you're going to get there. Because you know what's going to happen in the end. And so they, he says you have this hope, and one of the things that the Holy Spirit's going to do is he's going to create and solidify this hope in your heart. So I think so much of our impatience is just fueled by hopelessness. Or not having the proper perspective. You know, think about how Paul critiques the church in, 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 in Corinth. And, you know, you have this church where they're bickering and they're backbiting and constantly doing one-upmanship. And he's like, what, what's wrong with you? Do you not realize that it's all yours? You don't have to compete with one another. In Christ, it's all yours. And just what he tells them in, the, in Ephesians in chapter 1. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. So you don't have to be impatient or anxious about what's going to come your way. You have a strong hope. The great work of the Spirit is to give you life and to give you a people and to give you hope. And the power of our hope is that he's making people new. He's making a community new. And he's making creation new. I mean, the reality of the Christian hope means your best days are always in front of you. Always. That's the reality of the Christian hope. Now, the convictions, notice the next thing, the convictions about the Son. So he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, faith, baptism. And here, Lord is Paul's favorite designation for Jesus. 
Jesus the Lord. And just in Ephesians, he uses that phrase for Jesus over uh, right at 20 times. And so he, this is what got, um, came crashing down upon him while he was on the road to Damascus and got knocked off his horse and looked up and said, Who are you, Lord? And for a first century dedicated good Jewish boy to call somebody else the Lord other than Yahweh was a life-shattering reality. So his, his, his whole world was flipped upside down when he encountered the Lord. And that's why I think he loved to celebrate who Jesus is, that he is the Lord. And one of the most precious New Testament realities is that Jesus comes to us and he tells the disciples, you no longer call me master, or I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. So that personal relationship is so precious. But in the context of that, we can never forget he is the Lord, the living Lord of heaven and earth at who every knee one day will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. So the Lord. And then notice the next thing, you have one faith. And faith is used um, a couple different ways. Faith can either be a noun or a verb. It can either be something you, you do or it can be something you have and you hold. And so Paul uses both of these in Ephesians. So if you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you were saved. And that's through faith. And that's not of yourself, that's a gift. So faith is your uh, kind of personal response. Faith is a spiritual hand reaching out to grasp Christ is your personal response. But here in Ephesians chapter 4, faith is a, the, the faith is the content of the things we believe about him. So like in Jude chapter 3, he's, Jesus' brother says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So it means there's actually a, a body of things we're supposed to know, a body of doctrine or belief. That is the faith. So for our church, one of the most kind of important things that we're doing right now is, is putting together a statement of faith. What is the statement of the things this we believe? And we're taking, and as our starting point, a very kind of broadly evangelical, um, very good and clear statement of faith that the, this is the things that we believe. And... Uh, and so that's the faith, it's the content. And you actually see as you go throughout the list, like in, in chapter 4, you need to look at verse 13 where he says um, the whole, the faith, unity is unity of the faith that comes through um, sound doctrine. So moving, what he means by one faith. One baptism, actually not spend a whole lot of time here. Um, it's kind of interesting because what he's saying is all Christians, we have one baptism and of, of the whole list, you might think this is the most controversial. So you might think, well, what does he mean, one baptism? There's all types of different, you know, uh, Baptists believe this about baptism, Presbyterians believe this, and that's just in Protestants. And then what about what Catholics believe? Everybody believes different things about baptism. Well, actually, not really. There actually is a lot of unity. Everybody believes that baptism is the initiation into the people of God. Now, there's some debate about when that happens. Does it happen when you're born into the family, or does it happen when you express faith in Christ? But everybody believes it's initiation. But what he's actually talking about here is something that every, everybody agrees on as well, that the symbol, the actual physical symbol doesn't do anything to you. What it is is pointing to a spiritual reality of when you're uh, washed by the blood of the Lamb, incorporated into the Son, 
Son and made one with Him. So that's what baptism uh, represents. So the things about the Son, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And one of the reasons here we believe in believer's baptism is kind of, that's the natural progression. You recognize Jesus as Lord, you express faith in Him, and then baptized uh, following that. But that's uh, one of the reasons that's not something we actually make a defining mark where if you've been baptized as as a child we don't require it for membership but convictions about the son lord faith baptism then notice the last thing is convictions about the father because here's the here's the glorious climax where everything is moving where it's all going notice there's one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all through all and in all so he's going to highlight that now you're all in the member, you're all members of the same family and uh, brought together in this climax of celebration. This is actually doxology. And so what Paul is laying out, he's laying out the convictions, the theology they'd have to believe, but the whole point is to get you to a place of doxology. So theology is the study of God, doxology is the expression of God's praise, worship. So the whole point of the convictions you hold is to take you to a place so you can uh, sing songs of praise and worship. This is the climax. Worship, praise is the point. All true theology leads to doxology. And if it doesn't, your theology is defective. There's something wrong with it. See, what the type of convictions that we want to to create here is we want biblical convictions. They're like the seeds. And then spiritual fruit, biblical convictions are then fertilized by living praise and constant prayer. Biblical convictions fertilized by living praise and constant prayer is what grows into spiritual fruit. So that's what real biblical convictions are. So that's kind of what he's saying, these convictions about who God is, what we believe about God. It's the most important thing about us. Now, why? Why do we need those? So let's just take a few minutes and think through, all right, why is this something that, that matters? And I think if you just think about kind of life, just think about life in general, you cannot not believe things. Like, you, you will believe something. So, so we will either have thoughts that are um, shaped around the Word and submit to the Word, or you'll have thoughts that you just kind of come up with, but you're not going to be thoughtless. And what's interesting is Paul ministered into a world that was polytheistic. Poly mean many, theistic many gods. So his world was polytheistic. But the way their polytheism worked is that you had different gods depending on your location. So generally where you lived. So it's kind of like, it's almost think like every town almost like had its own mascot and that was a local deity and you, wor you worship the god of your, your location. You also live in a polytheistic world, but instead of having it determined by the town you live in, it's, by, it, you, it's determined by you. So we live in a world where everybody assumes the right to construct God as they see fit in their head. And so like Robert Bell in his book on the habits of the heart has this fascinating interview with this woman that he calls Sheila. And she talks about how she's very religious, very spiritual person. And as he starts to kind of probe and ask different questions, uh, it comes out that she's just kind of views kind of spirituality like a cafeteria and just kind of pulls different things from it. As he highlights, those things aren't necessarily consistent with 
other things, and she kind of laughs and says, well, I guess you could call my religion Sheilaism. Just, this is what I think. And that's a perfect illustration of just the common world we live in. So it was polytheistic, but everybody assumes a right to think um, as they will. So this is why having a scripturally shaped convictions are so important. Because if God exists, and then he has the right to tell us about who he is. So we want a theology, we want our convictions to be biblically based and scripturally shaped. So one of the key things that's going to mark our ministry here is we want it to be marked by theological clarity and depth. A church that's marked by theological clarity and depth. And actually, so we'll uh, give you a couple different images to think about these things. So one image is that healthy Christian maturity is you have like theological truth that gets embedded in your heart and then is fertilized by prayer and praise and then it goes, grows into healthy fruits. So that's one image. Um, another image to think about is uh, the study of theology for generations was always viewed as the queen of the sciences. So it was kind of the culmination of man's, the highest uh, science man could or humanity could pursue. And just think about that image for a second. I want to kind of tell you a couple things about the queen. So we want to be a church that in essence serves the queen, that serves the queen of the sciences. But a couple things about this queen, um, you're going to have to have glasses to see her. Because the reality is that our vision is smudged. We can't see clearly. And actually what God has given us is given us his word, and his word is the spectacles by which we can actually... So we need glasses to see her, but we want to see her. Because when you see her in all of her splendid array, she's beautiful. She's beautiful to see. You know, what you see is um, theology that's profoundly God-centered, that brings everything in the light of who he is and what he's done, as you see her in Paul. Paul's saying the things we hold are refracted through the reality of the Trinity. That theology is, is beautiful. You can begin to see how the world and yourself and history and where we've come from, where we're going, it begins to make sense in a way that it never made sense before. And we can have our minds shaped so our thinking becomes God-centered. See, what the Bible is, is the Bible is God using words to tell us about himself and his word, how he relates to the world and to his people, and then how we can relate to that. And we get that into the center of what we see. It comes together in this beautiful harmony. Today, actually, is uh, and when we get done, when I finish, Dale's going to come up and share a little bit uh, with you about it's... Uh, um, kind of International Bible Translation Day, where the churches all across the country are pausing and thinking about uh, praying for and thinking about the, the, the responsibility and the joy it is to bring the reality of the Bible all across the world, because you won't be able to see the beauty of who God is unless you have it to correct your sinful cataract eyes. So you need it. But another thing, and I get this from J.I. Packer, he says, if you're going to serve the queen, you remember the, the, you need glasses to see her, you need to know that she's beautiful, but she's also pretty sassy. And what he means by that is that when you, when you, have a, when you begin to really study theology, what it does is it actually equips you to speak up for God. And one of the things it'll cause you I mean, some of you who, so some of you are kind of professionals in other fields. Have you, we, we call it, you know, the scholar's twitch. 
I don't know if you've seen scholars twitch, but it happens. So my kind of professional academic career is, in essence, theology and church history. And so a lot of times you'll hear very loose, uninformed, confident things said about just kind of history and kind of creates this twitch. Because you're like, well, no, no, that's not it. It's, it's, but you can't, like, you know, if you want no friends, correct people's grammar. And if you really want no friends, like, correct them when they're talking about, you know, history and things like that. So you'll have no friends if you engage. And some of you med students, you know it. You'll hear people start talking about, you know, all this latest health fad. You just start twitching because you know that's not right. They're so wrong. Somebody needs to set them straight. But don't do it because you want to have friends. <laughs> and But theology actually creates you to start twitching in the world. Because you're actually put in a world where now all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who are denying what God is affirming. And you're surrounded by people who are affirming and celebrating what God's weeping over. And it, it, it'll, it causes tension in your heart. You'll, you'll, in order to follow him, you'll wrestle with what's my responsibility to challenge the perspective that is leaving God out. What's, what's my responsibility to insist that you don't understand anything until you understand it in his light with him at the center? So the, the queen, when we study these things, you need scripture to see her. She's beautiful when you see her, but she might cause you to start twitching some. So why would you even want to study it? And that would be one of the things, because it's very common just in evangelical circles or to say, you know, doctrine divides. Why would you want to intentionally have a church that's focused on theological kind of clarity and convictions? That's just going to alienate people. Or you might be thinking, well, that's not going to alienate people. It's just going to create dead hearts. So many good and godly people just assume that if you um, you, you can become like an egghead where you uh, try to study theology and it'll kill your zeal for the Lord. And it'll leave you with less vitality for godliness. Or it'll cause you to become out of touch with the practical realities of living. I say, well, the problem is if you get too kind of theologically bent. And the response to someone is just, thank you. I, I appreciate your, your zeal. And your concern for, for our healthy hearts, but we don't quite think you're seeing things as they really are. You don't quite have your finger on the pulse of the real problem. That is a true symptom, but that's not diagnosing the right problem. See, when theology is done well, when you really wrestle with who God is and what he said in the word, it causes you to see deeper into scripture than you ever otherwise could. It causes you to think about him and yourself and the world with a clarity and a cl uh, coherence that you never otherwise could. It puts you in a position where if it's done well, your zeal is increased, your focus on his glory is greater, and your passion is channeled in a wiser direction. So good theology facilitates godliness, doesn't hinder it. It helps us to speak well and think well and then do well and love well. It's for doxology. It's to get you to a place so you can praise. So just as I kind of wrap up here, just a couple almost kind of random points or images just to kind of think about. Just kind of some couple things that I wanted to say but couldn't quite work it in. So I'm just going to say it as like Twitter blast or <laughs> bullet points. So what I want you to notice is you notice like who God is and what he's done has to shape how we think of ourselves. Paul is praising, but the, the convictions are wrapped around the reality of the Trinity. 
not who Paul is. And so one of the most healthy ways to be is to get your focus off yourself and onto who God is. Um, when these convictions are clear, then that creates a culture that's beautiful. Then the church becomes powerful. Ray Ortland says that when the doctrine is clear, the culture is beautiful, then the church is powerful. And these are two aspects of what it needs to really experience transformation. See, the theological truth is the, is the seed, and then the community is the, is the environment in which that seed will grow into beautiful, healthy fruit. Because we're sanctified, we're cleansed by the word. So what Paul says in Romans or in five, Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about why Christ gave himself for his bride, the church, the whole point was to, to, to beautify her and cleanse her and sanctify her by the washing of the word. So it's a key to just personal and, and church health. And there's no real gospel renewal without this. There's no lasting emotional, spiritual fire with, without these realities in place first. They're the wood that you then need the Holy Spirit to pour down to create the fire. This is our goal of the children's ministry. Well, we want to get the truth in them, and then eventually when they're teenagers and older, you can set it on fire, but if you don't have anything in them, there's nothing that can be set on fire. I've told this story a number of times, and that's one of the, as you come here, just... You know, I only have so many stories, and so you just have to, you just have to wait, and I get older, and I'll get more. So, but when I was in college at the little church I worked at, Country Baptist Church, and I've told you uh, several stories about Miss Joanne Brown, who's kind of she was one of the matrons of the church, and uh, and one time she wasn't particularly fond of the way the priorities she thought I was placing in the girls that I was choosing to date. And um, her husband, Mr. Coleman, was one of the jolliest, happiest old men I've ever met. Like if Santa Claus had a dad, it was Mr. Coleman. And uh, one day she asked me, she goes, do you know why Mr. C Mr. Coleman is so happy? And I'm like, I'm not sure I want to travel down this road with you right now. <laughs> uh, no, no, don't, don't want to know. She goes, let me tell you something. She goes, kissing don't last, but cooking do. Kissing don't last, but cooking do. He's happy because I know how to cook. And you better find you a woman who knows how to cook if you want to be that happy when you get that age. And there is all that emotions and feelings. You know they don't last, but it's convictions that do. Those are the things that are going to last and stabilize you through the ups and through the downs. It's, it's convictions that do. And these are the convictions about who God is that are going to hold you and stabilize you. And another image just to think about is, you know, if you, if you have on, if you, if you hold these convictions, like if you can find a way, holding together the realities of verses 1 through 6 is nearly impossible. It is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. Because on the one hand, Paul is telling you, you have to be humble, you have to be patient, you have to be gentle, you have to go out of your way to bear with one another's burdens. And on the other hand, you hold with white-knuckle intensity the reality of who God is. Holy Spirit, Son, Father. You hold these. And how you hold those two things together, it requires a work of the Holy Spirit. But doing those things, it actually makes us strong in certain places, and it makes us really soft in other places. A couple years, probably, you know, I had to, just had that... I just had that moment standing here of a couple years ago, and then as I'm calculating, I was like, that was like 10 years ago. 
That wasn't a couple years ago. It's like 10 years ago, I saw an interview with Albert Pujols, and at the time, he was one of the best hitters in baseball. It's kind of in the steroid era, and he was, um, he was on track possibly to break all the, you know, the home run records and all these things. His career's kind of been derailed since then, and it slowed down, but he's still one of the greatest players ever to play, and he's a really big guy, and I celebrate and applaud whenever big guys do uh, remarkable things, and he was watching an interview with him, and he intentionally doesn't have, like, this incredibly, like, ripped kind of physique, and uh, the interviewer was kind of poking him, and kind of, because he, he's, he's got a little pudge on him, and the interviewer was poking him, and um, he kind of laughed, and he says, well, I actually very intentionally keep my body fat between 15 and 18 percent, and uh, he says, if you're going to have longevity in this game, you got to be hard in the right places and soft in the right places. <laughs> he said, that's how you can stay where you don't get injured. And I thought, I don't know if that's good baseball, but that's probably good godliness. <laughs> that's good theology. you got to be hard in certain places. There are certain things you just hold to with, with conviction. And you've got to be soft in other places. The image that I kind of want of our church and want of myself as a pastor theologian is the image almost of like a teddy bear with a, ba- a backbone of steel. So you're, you're soft and approachable, but you have a backbone of steel that's solid, that you're not just being thrown uh, every which way. You're, you're, you're hard and soft in the right. right we'll stop that analogy. <laughs> So really quick, just what that'll do is that creates humility. I mean, have you ever had a week, do you think, in your life where you've need Like, we are so prone to slip into rancor and party spirit. Is there anything our country needs more than, than just real humility? And that's what this creates. But it also creates strength in all the right places. Where you're not fudging on things that really, really matter. So as we close, let's praise God and thank Him. For the gift of his truth that gives us clarity. And then the gift of his grace that makes us humble and generous. So Lord, we praise you for your word. We thank you for the reality of who your son is and what he's declared here. And we ask that you would help us. Pray that we would be, we would be filled with uh, the type of people who are like theological teddy bears. Who can be hugged and embraced and children can, can come but then have backbones of steel that, that have clarity and convictions and are marked by humility, but also marked by a remarkable confidence in your word. And so we, we praise you for your word. We ask that you help us to treasure it. We confess to you that we know so little of it. So we ask that you help us to be the type of people who uh, seeks to have all that we say, all that we do, all that we think shaped by it. So we praise you for the gift of your son. We praise you for the gift of your spirit. We praise you for the gift of your word. This we ask in Christ's name.
come in. Galatian, because if there's no word, you, there's no place you can get your convictions from. So Ben said I couldn't preach another sermon, so I'll try to make it quick. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to share a couple of different sort of snippets. I like your idea of like tweets, but a little bit different. Um, one, to kind of situate us in the historical context with regard to scripture and how we use it. Two, to give you an example of how that looks in reality. And three, to give you kind of like a uh, what's happening right now or kind of where we are in the world. So I would first say that my wife Miranda and I are with Wycliffe Bible Translators, one of a number of different organizations that is working to facilitate and promote the translation of scripture into all of the remaining languages on our, on our planet. So um, first, sorry, I need my scripture. Um, I want to read a very small snippet of Romans 10 to you, and it's one that you guys have probably heard quite a bit um, already. And that is, uh, let's see. All right. So Paul in Romans 10, 14 says, um, or in 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? Or how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? For just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now, Oftentimes, we talk about that in the context of sharing the gospel with people as we go, which is amazing and awesome, and we should. But I want to point out to you, in just those four verses, Paul actually said, and I don't know if you picked that up, for it is written. Paul actually says in Romans 10, for it is written 11 times. In the entire book of Romans, he says, for it is written, and shares scripture 52 times. Something like 60-something verses of Romans is actually quoting other scripture. Now, the really cool thing about that is that it is not the Hebrew scripture, most likely, that he's quoting. He's actually quoting a translation of the Hebrew text called the Septuagint, which happened over 2,000 years ago. So even as the church was growing nascent, and Paul was sharing the good news with everyone in the known world at the time. He was actually using a translation of the scriptures to which they had access. So Bible translation as a thing is something that has been going on for 2,000 years. One of the coolest things that we have now is that we are in an amazing age of scripture translation. And, and what I mean by that is... Um, there are over 7,000 languages that we know of that are used in the world today. Of those, currently, 550 or so have the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, every day, in thousands of languages around the world, Scripture is being translated, new projects are being started, and um, I want to share with you a short story about one of those. So, um, <clears throat> The Kanda people is a people group that is in um, sort of eastern central India, and um, they're, uh, they're kind of in a mountainous area, and there had been uh, people working to share the scripture, to share the gospel story in and among the Kanda people for years and years and years and years. There were people working to evangelize uh, and to, to convince people to become Jesus followers for a decade plus. Um, pretty much to no avail. While those things were happening, there was also a scripture translation project um, 
in that language group. And in around 2006, uh, the Kanda New Testament translation was completed. And uh, as is often the case, when a New Testament is completed, there's a party because we should celebrate. So there was. And one of the things that happens at those parties, at those scripture celebrations, is they have um, copies, printed copies of the book, sometimes other copies, electronic and otherwise. But they have printed copies of the New Testament in Kanda, in the Kanda language that were available there for folks to buy. And um, one of the young men from some of the villages that evangelists had been working in for years and years and years with practically no results whatsoever, um, he bought a kind of New Testament because he was literate in his language and he took it back home. And then he did this really, really radical and subversive thing. He invited his friends and his neighbors and his family into his home in the evenings to read the gospel, the New Testament, in their heart language. And the crazy thing that happened is Within the year, within about 12 months of that beginning, nearly that entire village had decided to become Jesus followers. And then they said, we've got to tell the others. So they went to the next village and to the next village and to the next village and began to share the truth of the gospel, the, um, the thing which creates the lasting spiritual fire. I wrote that down, Ben. Um, so that's just one story of literally a thousand that I wanted to share with you this morning because when the people that God, have cre that God has created have access to the scripture in a language that speaks to their hearts, the gospel spreads, the church grows, and lives are transformed. That's the reality that we face. Now, the last thing that I'll share, I'm sorry if I'm going over, Ben, the last thing that I'll share is this, um, as I mentioned, there are dozens of organizations around the world that are working to facilitate and promote Bible translation. Wycliffe, as an organization, has been around since the 40s. We just celebrated the 1,000th New Testament that our organization has been involved with. And so that's cool. Yeah, you can clap if you want. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the cool things that it demonstrates is the reality of how scripture translation happens today. The, the, the 1,000 New Testament that we, that we just finished, and it was, we did the celebration in like August, so this is real new, um, was the Coleco language New Testament. And the Coleco people is a group of about 20 to 25,000 people whose home is in South Sudan. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with what's been going on in that part of the world, but there's been some turmoil um, lately, and before that, and before that. Uh, the Coleco New Testament actually, translation actually got started around 1983, um, driven initially by churches in that area. Um, they later solicited some help and some assistance uh, from Wycliffe and our partner organizations. That translation project was derailed not once but twice by civil war and regional conflict. The first time, the folks that were working on the translation fled to, the, fled to Congo, they fled to northern Uganda, and the translation stopped. It picked back up again in the late 90s, and then there was another regional conflict, uh, civil war, and other, uh, those other things, and then that project continued. It was finally completed, I don't do the math very quickly, but 35-ish years later, um, and we celebrate today the access that 
the Coleco people have to God's word, at least the New Testament, in their heart language um, so that they in their church can have a foundation on which to build their theology, to express their doxology. That's why Bible translation is important, and that's why um, my wife and I and, and many others do the things that we do. So I just wanted to share that with you today. Today is, as Ben said, National Bible Translation Day. It is um, also St. Jerome's Day. That's why today is the day that we picked. Um, he was one of the first to translate the entire Bible, and so um, we celebrate everything that God is doing to reconcile his world to himself through um, Heart Language Scripture Access today. Thanks for sharing. And so as we celebrate what changes you, it's the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. It's what changes you and changes anyone. And so um, each week we uh, partake in communion because we want to hear the Word and then we want to receive and taste uh, the Word. So if our servers will come forward um, here at Trinity, we're practicing intinction methods, which means you'll take and dip, and the table is for all the Lord's people uh, who come to his table. The station in the back there will be gluten-free if you have a gluten allergy. So once our servers are in place, you can come.
stand together and sing this song in worship. Lord, I need you. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall. As we sing this next verse, I think it's an opportunity for us to think about the ways that we can give back to the Lord, not just through our tithes and offerings, but in our lives. Um, as you think about the week ahead, what are the ways that God is calling you to give back this week?
And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace. Spotless bride, we are your priests and kings. You've made us children of the light to shine for all to see. Your holy church, your spotless bride, we are your priests and kings. You've made us children of the light to shine for had foretold Jesus the Messiah Son of God Praise God for He has come Praise God for what He's done God forevermore. 
Crushed for our transgressions, he died.